0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen folks and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Welcome to Inside Geneva and Happy New Year everyone. Not only have we started 2020 but the UN is celebrating a milestone this year. The UN is 75 years old and when we look at how this year started, we're going to take a listen just now, facing a huge number of challenges.
1: Breaking news this morning, the U.S. has carried out the assassination of a top Iranian military and intelligence commander.
2: They kill our people, they blow up our people, and then we have to be very gentle with their cultural institutions. Stop escalation. Exercise maximum restraint. Let us not forget the terrible human suffering caused by war.
0: Deadly wildfires prompting mass evacuations. Climate
3: change is making this natural pattern worse and more extreme.
0: It is going to be very
1: hot. It is going to be very, very windy. People, get out now.
0: So we heard there some major, major challenges facing us all, facing the planet in the years to come. Today, to discuss the future of the UN, not just... In geopolitics, but in physical as well, I'm joined by Nick Cumming-Bruce of the New York Times, Veronique Nice, who is head of the UN Strategic Heritage Project here in Geneva, and as ever, Daniel Warner of the Graduate Institute. Nick, I'm going to ask you first, we heard there the issues between the United States and Iran. Now, you've reported on the UN for many years, so have I both of us know this is the place the UN should be in trying to de-escalate this. What are the chances, do you think?
1: Not a lot. I think uh, we see uh, the UN increasingly sidelined by the major powers. None of them seem particularly interested in using what good offices the UN has to offer. Uh, And instead, the UN is kind of playing always a chasing catch-up role to try and introduce some note of moderation into uh, international discourse at a time when the leaders of the major powers um, are pursuing very different agendas. And so uh, I think we're going to see more of that in this particular year. And it was interesting to hear Fabrizio Drummond this morning talking about the preparation for the 75th anniversary, alluding quite explicitly to the fact that uh, one of the major functions of the UN in, in terms of conflict resolution is one where it's not fulfilling its promise and alluding specifically to the paralysis and conflict in the major body, which is the UN Security Council.
0: Well, of course, the UN is only as strong as the member states that are in it. And as you, as you said, you know, it, it's losing its relevance because many leaders just don't want it. Don't want I mean, you get the, the impression sometimes that somebody like, like President Trump or, or Viktor Orban, if we, we talk about the immigration, they see the UN as an obstacle rather than as a support. Danny, that's also the case, something else, where the UN should really be involved, and that's climate change. I mean, the year has also kicked off with terrible scenes from Australia with these fires. And again, this is something which needs a multilateral approach, and yet the country at the burning heart of it, Australia, its government is not really on board with a multilateral approach.
2: Well, multilateralism involves states, So you can't do much if the states don't agree. But I would make a slight distinction with Nick that peace and security is really in the Security Council, which is in New York. And I don't think we should forget that Geneva especially has the specialized agencies, UNHCR, the World Health Organization, and to some extent, in spite of conflicts, U.S., Iran, or whatever, these agencies continue to function as best they can. So that while multilateralism does not have a great name today, still there are special agencies which are functioning as best they can, again, with perhaps less leadership than they should have.
0: Veronique, I'm going to bring you in here. It's a slightly uh, change of gear. But we're talking about trying to get countries together together to agree on, on common goals of peace and, and protecting the planet. And of course, we are in an enormous building here. A lot of our listeners will not have seen it, which has been witness to many, many, many peace negotiations over the year. You start first, tell us a little bit about the building.
3: So the building is a fantastic historical building built in the 30s. And uh, it uh, hosted the Société des Nations until 1946. The League of Nations. Mm -hmm. And it's a neoclassic architecture. It's a building that is also um, hosting a fantastic conference center. And it's extraordinary that people in the 30s had the ambition to invent and build this conference center here in Geneva. This building, it's uh, also a testimony of different layers of architecture from the 30s, then from the 50s, and there is still a new building called as a new building that was built in the 70s.
0: So the part that we are sitting in right now is from the 30s, and this was built, I mean, basically the idea came after the First World War for the League of Nations, and the idea was that this institution would prevent war. Sadly, as we know, that that didn't work. But yet, the architecture, Nick and I know some of it is a bit rough and ready in terms of the windows and the electrics and the heating, but the architecture is fantastic. Huge marble hallways and Art Deco lamps. And I read somewhere it's actually bigger than Versailles. Is that right? It is,
3: and uh, depending if you count the entire compound or not, but uh, the buildings are huge and uh, it hosts um, 20 hundred workplaces and offices right now. And you're right that um, it's, um, it's the place where so many countries are, are working, and um, space, but also heritage, it's also somehow politics. The Palais is, the, is an outstanding testimony of the 21st century architecture, and is also the home of an important art collection. And painting, sculpture, artworks on paper and fabric, ceramic and photograph represent the diversity and the richness of the world's cultures.
0: Do you think that this reflection of the world's cultures, the things we can achieve by being positive and creative, do you think it's conducive, maybe? I mean, I've seen Sergei Lavrov walking here and John Kerry and Hillary Clinton. And are these surroundings conducive to making peace? I hope so. <laughs> what do you think, Nick? Well,
1: if you look at the, uh, the the last 10 years and the peace negotiations that have taken place, um, there's not a great track record of, of success. I don't think you can blame the United Nations establishment here for that. But uh, it's, it's sad that um, the peace negotiations on Georgia and Abkhazia drag on. Um, the Conference on Disarmament rumbles steadily on producing... No agreements or progress, even on an agenda. The Syrian peace talks have gone through three uh, negotiators with the fourth. Absolutely no closer to... Uh, no
0: in fact, they cancelled a meeting in December, didn't they? Indeed, they and there did. was no reason to have it.
1: So, yeah, the, the peacemaking potential. And again, just another one was Cyprus, which also uh, failed to achieve a result and outcome. You know, we have to hope for better things to come because the last ten years don't uh, don't certainly order well.
2: Are you as depressed as that, Daddy? Well, I mean, I, I'm trying to be optimistic. It is the beginning of a new year, okay. and just to say, there's a difference between peace negotiations which take place in Geneva and in Switzerland, which has a comparative advantage of being a neutral country, and certain decisions about peace and security, which is supposed to take place in the Security Council. So I think it's interesting that states, NGOs, other players come to Geneva to negotiate whereas finally certain decisions are made at the state level in New York. Uh, The fact that Geneva is conducive to these talks, I think, is important. I would add to the wonderful things in the Palais de Nation, I would add the library for those people at the Graduate Institute all over the world come here to do research. But I do think there's something about the spirit of Geneva which gives some Incentive for people to come here and to negotiate. As Nick said, whether they're successful or not depends on other things than Geneva. Uh, But we do see Switzerland, for example, once again with the protective mandate between the United States and Iran. Uh, So there is something about neutrality, Switzerland, and there is something about Geneva.
0: Well, and it's halfway between Moscow and Washington. I think that's it. That's a Cold War War statement.
1: (laughs) I think... think, um, that's a, a very good point. I think the, the neutrality factor is, is hugely significant. Uh, it's interesting, though, that we also have down the road, a, you know, or in Geneva, a number of um, conflict resolution organisations, which attest to the growth of private diplomacy at a time when, you know, the Security Council isn't providing that leadership and coverage that it was set up to produce. I'm
2: just going to say there are other countries now which are becoming very active as well. I think of Norway specifically, yeah. so that peace negotiations, uh, I hate to say it's a business, but there is competition for Geneva and Switzerland.
0: That's something behind the the heritage project, isn't it, uh, Veronique, which is, we should explain, a massive, multi-multi-multi-multi-million franc-dollar project to renovate this building, which is bigger than Versailles, and bring it up to the 21st century. One of the reasons there is so much effort and funding going into it is that it's hugely important to Geneva and to Switzerland to keep the UN here and to keep it as the, the kind of humanitarian heart of the United Nations.
3: Yeah, definitely. So in, in the UN in Geneva is one of the most important conference facilities in Europe, for sure. And um, we try to modernize also this uh, conference center, with, uh, and we want to... Uh, replace the obsolete information and communication technology infrastructure. And delegate and staff will be supported by new information and communication technology, such as robotic camera, which will enable new functionality and webcasting and remote uh-huh. participation in order also to, to feed the information and to be also at the forefront of this type of conference center worldwide, because there is a competition concerning all these type of facilities. And if Geneva and the UN wants to be a leader, and the place where all these key meetings will take
0: place, the facilities should be up to date. But you're going to keep the, all of that beautiful architecture. I wouldn't like to see those, those lamps and marble halls go.
3: No, we will keep the fantastic heritage, also furniture from Charlotte Perriand, fantastic seats and, um, and facilities in the conference rooms, it
0: will be kept, but the audiovisual will be completely uh, renovated and upgraded. What's the main challenge then? I, I I read a little bit about the kind of the the, the electric system of the. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, it's really back in the 1930s. Some of the stuff.
3: I have to say that uh, our colleagues from the facility management have done a fantastic job. So when you visit the palais, you don't see that finally it's uh, as obsolete as it seems. Nevertheless, behind the walls. Uh, everything is dated from the 30s. <laughs> everything.
0: Nearly everything. Yeah, I mean, I have to be kind of brutally honest. In winter, my office is really cold. And in summer, it's really hot. So this, I'm hoping... I mean, can you reassure me? I'm going to see an improvement uh, I reassure you, <laughs>
3: and the project is also part of the SDG uh, target goals in terms of sustainability, both the new building but also the palais. So we try to be uh, cost efficient in terms of energy savings.
2: Isn't there a problem among certain people with spending money on buildings while other types of activities, uh, refugees, climate change, poverty, uh, that money could be used differently? And I, as a New Yorker, as you can easily tell by my accent, uh, there is a certain animosity toward the United Nations in New York and the building. And when they redid the building, people said, why are they spending so much money on updating this when it could be spent on other things? So when Imogen talks about the marble and the the lamps, people from the outside may say, well, should it be that luxurious and that up to date? And can't the money be spent? Because we're talking about, what, 800 million, Mm -hmm. something like that.
0: Okay, so basically, we're close to a billion dollars for this. But, I mean, you couldn't just let... I mean, it's a piece of history, the the UN, the 1930s part of it. You couldn't really just let it go.
3: It's also more than that. We have to be uh, code compliant in terms of health and safety. That's currently uh, not always the case. And more than that, we have also to talk about the delegates, the member states, but also the civil servants, who uh, are working in these buildings, and we need also to give them the space and the tools in order to uh, work efficiently. And um, this is why the Strategic Heritage Project will help to modernise also the UN workforce. Nick?
1: I was amused to see that uh, the original plans for the Strategic Heritage, updating of, of, of the older buildings, was modified to take account of climate change. And there was no original intention to introduce cooling into this part of the Palais, but because of the uh, two-decade record of, of a hotter climate and, and Switzerland enjoying very much hotter weather, that uh, the additional budget items were added to introduce cooling to this part of the Palais.
0: Is that something you've been having to adapt to?
3: We are quite lucky in Geneva because we can cool the space in a sustainable way as we can use the
0: lake water system. I didn't know that. So, I mean, the lake is just out there. You're going to use that to cool the building?
3: Exactly. So that will be the case for the Palais, not everywhere, but in, in key areas and also in the new building entirely.
2: How many people work here and how many visitors do you have a year?
3: So roughly there are 1,500 civil servants working on daily basis here, and visitors, uh, roughly it's
0: 100,000 visitors per year, so it's massive. Nick, do you think some people listening think, my God, all of those people working in Geneva, that we might, you know, we're coming full, full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning, whether the UN is relevant... That some people might think, but what do they actually do? Well, it's
1: you know this is the operational hub of the of the United Nations. All the aid agencies are focused here. That doesn't happen uh, on a wing and a prayer. You need a, a, a huge human infrastructure to to make that function. And um, so Geneva is, is is the focal point of that, and and UNOG is at the epicenter of it. So I think uh, it's easy to get to those sorts of numbers without. Ex- looking at a lot of feather bedding or overstaffing, although clearly the budget constraints on the UN are being applied to to whittling down the manpower here in in a significant way. Well,
0: that's getting worse, actually. You hear that. I mean, and we've heard some of the aid agencies and UN human rights as well saying, well, we're going to have to stop this activity, we're going to have to stop that activity. Or
2: outsource it to, to places that are less expensive than Geneva and Switzerland.
1: And that also, you know, we see agencies putting much greater emphasis on moving staff through their regional and and, uh, other offices around the world, which is a great idea in in certain respects. But, you know, it's expensive in a way that um, we don't hear much about. And, And those costs, I'm not quite sure financially at the end of the day what the savings are. It's arguably cheaper to have people employed in in the Philippines than it is in Switzerland, obviously. But if you're moving international staff and their families, those kind of costs are are huge and, and one doesn't hear exactly how that takes account. And then there's a cost in terms of continuity. And I think also
2: there's something about a critical mass of people seeing each other. The International Organization for Migration talks to people from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, talks to people from the World Health Organization. So people see each other. It's much easier to be in Geneva in that sense, which I think is positive, but it may be more expensive.
0: Veronique, just because uh, Danny mentioned them, the the International Organization for Migration, there's Mm -hmm. the World Health Organization, there's the UN Refugee Agency, they all have Separate buildings, also very large. Is there any discussion about doing anything with them, do you know? So we are currently
3: coordinating um, the space planning with the, the human rights. And the good news, and from the beginning of the project, is that they will move at the end of the
0: project in 2024 in the compound. So, so they won't for, be down at the beautiful Palais Wilson Which anymore. costs 34
2: million francs to redo.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful building, I should say, another beautiful building looking out at the lake. So they won't have uh, it anymore.
3: No, so the, the idea is to work with them, and we are in touch nearly on daily basis now in order to make sure that their move on the compound will be efficient, even it's in a few years' time. But uh, that's the big win also of the project, is to make uh, new entities motivated to join the, the, the compound in order to break the silos and as you said, to exchange, to work much more collaboratively?
2: One thing, I know security is a problem here. And several years ago, it was organized the first open day to have people who wanted to visit come in. But generally, security is rather strict here. So people who come to Geneva and want to see the Palais, they have to go through an official tour. So it's not easy to come and admire what's inside here.
3: It's true, but it's also the period of time where we are, we are now, and uh, security has to be enhanced more and more. Nevertheless, we try, the UN tries to um, make it much more easy for the public to open much more the palais. There is also a project uh, in order to have a kind of welcome center near the Place des Nations, So you don't need to enter in the compound, but you can have already already the flavour of what's going on and what is the core business of
0: uh, the staff who
3: are working there.
0: It's worth it to have a tour of the UN, though. I I joined one once just to to learn a bit myself about the building, and I I thought it was amazing. It was fascinating.
3: It is, and also it's worth to see the 2,000 pieces of art telling you the stories of uh, war and peace around the world and also to have the explanation, because it's a testimony per country of of the, the decades of
0: discussion here in the Palais concerning the peace. And people do come and do it. I mean, that's what I always, I kind of warms my heart. I walk into Geneva, into the Palais, sometimes uh, on a Monday morning, and there are people from all over the world, and they've come specifically to have their pictures taken outside the United Nations, which shows you that even if government leaders don't um, attach much relevance to the u n or some of them, then a lot of ordinary people do and on that note we're going to we're getting close to the end of the program, so I think I might ask each of you just for a quick prognosis for 2020 I'll start with you Veronique, mm-hmm. where are we going to be at the end of 2020 in terms of this project how is the building going to be in twelve months' time
3: so in 2020 we will deliver the new the new building, so it's the first phase of the project in order to start the renovation. so it's a key milestone and a key uh, year for for the project. You will work much more flexible, meaning that um, word. you will work uh, more dynamically and also co- collaboratively with additional uh, meeting rooms, meeting area, collaborative area depending also uh, of your specific needs during the day. It will be also the opportunity to, um, to exchange with more colleagues uh, as there will be um, also meeting points. And of course, uh, you will use a new technology in order to maybe not to, to travel a little bit less, but to exchange more and more around the world.
0: Okay. Interesting. Well I tell you I know uh can speak for both Nick and I that our specific needs over the course of the day definitely include coffee. <laughs> uh Nick, what do you think? What's your prognosis for twenty twenty? In
1: terms of what we will be working on?
0: Yeah, what we'll be what you and I will be what will be catching our eyes, do you think? Well
1: it was always going to be significant attention to the Middle East anyhow, and of course the events of the last week have given that particular new momentum. But uh, beyond the immediate Iran-Iraq crisis, there is still the future of this ne- never-ending war in Syria and the prospect of what's going to happen in terms of peace in Yemen. Another major item, I suppose, on our agenda would be uh, the whole question of human rights and the issues of uh, Xinjiang and, and, and China's mm-hmm. handling of, of the, the Uyghur crisis and, of course, the Hong Kong issue. And then uh, I think we will be looking for um, probably uh, a lot more information, a lot more discussion on sort of the global spread of, of, of these brands of, of terrorism in, in the Sahel and, and the impact of uh, insecurity and climate change, the combination of those issues in, in, in across the developing world.
0: Yeah I agree with you um I I would say that's that's going to be key that that connection between what's happening to the planet in terms of climate deprivation of resources and and conflict um yeah and also I mean I'm we'll be looking Iran Iraq Iraq specifically from the Britain's uh, historic involvement there. Um, trade I'm going to be looking at because obviously there's theoretically some big trade negotiations going on this year between Britain and the European Union, whether Britain will fall onto uh, WTO rules. And I think this may be a subject for another Inside Geneva, which will be, will be trade and, and the WTO. And Syria, which we felt for months it's approaching endgame game. And what I fear right now is that there in the north, in Idlib, is going to be a, a catastrophe worse than Aleppo and worse than eastern Ghouta. That's, that's what it feels like. And that's, that's going to be hard, and not least for the people who live there. Danny?
2: Well, I mean, in front of the palais, one of the main entrances, there's a place for peaceful demonstrations, and I'm seeing around the world more and more people giving voice to what they feel are injustices. And I think of Hong Kong, I think of Bolivia, I think of lots of different places. And I would just hope that those people outside the Palais had more influence to what's going on inside the Palais and that their voices will be heard uh, to some extent so they get satisfied or at best hope to have their injustices rectified.
0: OK, thanks very much. That's it from Inside Geneva for this week. A mixture of aspiration and, and trepidation, I think, for the uh, the year ahead. Thanks to Veronique Nice of the Welcome. Strategic Heritage Project, Nick Cumming-Bruce of the New York Times, and Daniel Warner, as ever, of the Graduate Institute. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to Swissinfo.ch forward slash ENG forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time and thank you all for listening.
1: Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, Satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.